Why do we need a radio feed? Maybe we don't need, but we carry the dream. BFF.FM, the stream. Shadow Time. A parallel time scale that follows one around throughout day-to-day experience of regular time. Shadow time manifests as a feeling of living in two distinctly different temporal scales simultaneously. Or acute consciousness of the possibility that the near future will be drastically different than the present.
Welcome to Shadow Time on BFF.fm. I'm Lily Sloan, though it's still daylight here in San Francisco. Today's show is about the moon, in some ways specifically and in many ways, metaphorically. You just heard Moon Moons by Anna Meredith. And before that, today's Shadow Time intro featured a piece of, I guess, music. Um, We'll call it that. Uh, By me. That included some bits of poetry from my elementary school poetry reading. I honestly don't know if that was me or another kid. Uh, If that was you, let me know. But it ties in really nicely with the first part of what I'll be sharing today from our featured artist, the darkly brilliant and endlessly playful Ross Sutherland of the award-winning mostly fiction podcast, Imaginary Advice. A few weeks ago, or a few years ago, um, what is time? Um, Ross put out an episode called Ari the Moon, as in regarding the moon. I was new to listening to his show at the time, and it really, really moved me. Uh, like his work usually does. So I asked Ross if I could share parts one and two today. Uh, They're kind of two pieces to this theme of the moon. And later we'll also hear a voice memo from him and sounds and voice memos from friends and listeners of the show. So starting us off, here's part one of Ross Sutherland's R.E. The Moon. Hey, look, it's the moon. Did you know uh, that the moon is thought to be about 4.51 billion years old? Did you know that? If you don't know what the moon is, it's the uh, it's the only astronomical body that orbits planet Earth. It's our only permanent natural satellite, guys. So yeah, it's kind of a big deal, actually. If you're not familiar with it, I'd really appreciate you doing me a solid and, uh, and checking it out. Did you also know um, moon lovers, did you also know that uh, the 17th century poet Matsuo Basho uh, said that we should think of a haiku, kind of like a finger pointing at the moon? But he said, uh, you got to make sure that you don't put too many jewels on your finger because then people stop looking at the moon and they start looking at the finger instead. See, it's meant to be a poetry lesson about keeping your writing simple and honest. And uh, it's nice, isn't it? I really like that quote. I mean, Basho probably never actually said this, though it is still attributed to him all the time. There's not a huge amount of monks with bejeweled fingers wandering around back in Basho's day, Edo period Japan. Wouldn't have really been a relatable analogy. Uh, The real origin of the quote is probably... Uh, the American haiku writer James W. Hackett from his 1964 book of haikus. But it doesn't really matter, really, does it? It doesn't matter whose finger it is, Basho's or Hackett's, because we're not meant to be looking at the finger, are we? We're supposed to be looking at the moon. We have to look past language, past the person who says it, and try to imagine the thing beyond. I teach poetry classes from time to time uh, with all different ages from about five years old on up. Uh, I teach in schools and prisons, hospitals. First exercise I do in pretty much every single class I teach, no matter who they are or uh, or how old they are, uh, I ask them to describe the moon. Everyone can learn something from this exercise, I think. Write a list of metaphors, I say. The moon is an adjective noun. The moon is a dark record. The moon is a blue church. The moon is a haunted inflatable. Now, of course, the moon is kind of a poetic cliche. It's a pretty hackneyed, romantic subject. But in many ways, that makes it the perfect place to start, particularly for an unsure writer, um, someone anxious about the rules and systems of poetry. 
It's easy to be tricked into believing that a poem arrives in the writer's mind all at once, fully formed, rather than through, you know, fucking around, which is the truth. And is there a better place to fuck around than the moon? The moon is a sad bassist. You see, uh, the moon has a, a kind of powerful gravitational field. Obviously not in real life, of course, but, but in poetry it does. In poetry, the moon draws in concepts. It draws in language. Words just seem to stick to the moon. I maintain that a poet can pretty much compare the moon to anything. And the reader will read back that line and think to themselves, oh yeah, kind of see what they're getting at. The moon is a time-lapsed mouth. The moon is an Aztec supermarket. It's almost as if through centuries of art and attention and manipulation, we've exaggerated the moon so much that we've we've broken it in our brains. And now it's just this this open figurative channel. The moon is a it's a kind of open goal. Well there's another one. When doing this exercise with students, there's one other condition that I insist upon. I ask my students to select their adjectives and nouns, not from their imagination, but from the world around them. They have to open a dictionary on a random page, or another type of book on a random page, or choose a word from a recent text message, or a word overheard on the radio, or the playground. Not from the same source either. I want them to be putting together two words from two different sources. One source for the adjective, one for the noun. Uh, I'm trying to encourage them to, to act first, think later, to, uh, to work intuitively, and to use their environment as an extension of their imagination. I also want them to smash together words that don't really belong together uh, to create sparks and confusion, to create a brand new, never before uttered description of the moon. Like, no matter if on first glance it just feels like gibberish. Despite the excessive commentary uh, that already covers the moon, it is still possible to say something new about it. The moon is a Roman floppy disk. The moon is a feline sitcom. The moon is a Hebrew kingpin. So I've done workshops like this about once a week for about like 17 years. So I can go all day if you want. I've got reams of this stuff in folders next door. The moon is a ubiquitous chairman. Sometimes in class we take it further. Uh, I might ask the class, uh, oh, so this description of the moon here, if this was the first line in the story, what kind of story would it go on to be? Or uh, if I was to say to you, on the day that I was born, the moon was a dead travel agent. Then what kind of a person would I be? What kind of horrific person would I be? But, but, but I insist, like, we don't start thinking about any of that until after the line is written. First we write it, then we work out what it means. First the accident, then the autopsy. No matter what goes onto the page, it always seems to make sense in the end. It always seems to make sense. At least to my ears it does. That's how powerful the moon is. Everywhere you point, there's the moon. Now, language is elastic, I know that. We can stretch any metaphor pretty far before it breaks, but I think the moon is particularly suited to these kinds of manipulations. Every pool of water reflects it after all, but it's always the same moon. I don't think Basho would like this very much, however. He was trying to encourage us to speak plainly and honestly. We got to remember like Basho is writing uh, at the start of poetry, well, at least relatively at the start of poetry. The moon is, is so new back then in Edo period Japan. The moon still got that, that fresh car smell. Back then, the moon is still pure. It's 100% proof. Perhaps the idea of speaking honestly and plainly about the moon still felt possible then. At least it felt like something to aspire to. But that was back before 
before millions of people lifted their ridiculous bejeweled fingers up to the sky and claimed the moon as their own. Somewhere in that endless attack, I think we broke the moon. We pointed at it so much that it, it kind of became everything. And I find that interesting and useful for poetry, sure. But, I mean, it also makes me feel nervous, too. Because, I mean, I don't know if I want this phenomenon to spread further. I don't want to believe that if we talk long enough about anything, we end up breaking it somehow. Basho lost the moon, but I don't want him to give up on everything else. It's unsettling to imagine a world where we can no longer speak plainly on anything. Where all of us are, are weighed down with borrowed jewels, all of language now glittering like an incomprehensible rap video. In a world like that, it's no longer the moon that's broken. It's the finger. This would be a world where anything could be considered a metaphor for anything else. And any semblance of meaning would only arrive later as an afterthought. I guess I'm saying... I like the moon, but yeah, I wouldn't want to live there. The moon is an obvious nickname. The moon is a photocopied lake. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon.
You are listening to Shadow Time. This is BFF.FM. I'm Lily Sloan. And that... Whoa! <laughs> the mic just tried to escape from, from me. It tried to book it out of this room. It's tired of being talked at all the time. Um, the music you just heard was Sky Witness by Y Oak, featuring the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. And I see that song as a nice extension of our, uh, maybe a tangent from or with, I think, what Ross Sutherland in uh, part one of Ari, the moon is speaking to. Uh, the moon, this strange satellite, this ever-present orb, so close and so far, so familiar and so mysterious, allowing for all kinds of projections and magical thinking that, you know, we can ascribe to it. So let's get right back into uh, Ross's Ari the Moon with part two, in which Ross tells a spooky moon-adjacent story. I don't want to give anything away, so just let it wash over you, move through you. Here you go. Monroe's was surrounded on all sides by forest. Perhaps this is why the obsession began, birthed from a kind of claustrophobia, a feeling that the school occupied a borrowed space, a clearing that should never have been. Apparently, when the school first opened, the trees began right at the gates, Dense pines that barcoded the sunlight at home time. At least, that was how I imagined it. By the time I came to Monroe's, the school had expanded the clearing a mile in every direction. The road approach felt desolate now, just blackened tree stumps and debris. The school sat squat at the centre of it all. The teachers said that the forest had been cleared for an expansion. Some said new sports centre, others said new science block, but we all knew nothing would ever be built there. It was simply a way to hold back the forest, to expose any creature that emerged from it. The forest was still visible though. That jagged green horizon, you could never erase it completely. We'd often catch teachers mid-class at the window, their minds lost inside it. My friends who went to other schools were jealous of us Monroe boys as we had an extra day off once a month. On this day, we were supposed to stay in our homes under a kind of voluntary house arrest. Teachers called the holiday Radiator Day because our parents were supposed to chain us to our bedroom radiators. Only one or two parents actually complied. Nevertheless, the rest of us had to keep a low profile. The school had eyes in the community. Because the lunar cycle doesn't tally exactly with the calendar, Radiator Day tended to oscillate. Sometimes it was the 14th, sometimes it was the 15th. You had to be absolutely certain every month. Because any pupil that approached the school on Radiator Day would be shot on sight. The school had built a special tower for the caretaker to sit with his rifle. Just after I started at Monroe's, I remember there was a big school meeting with all the parents there too. The school had decided to ban all white circular objects from the school. From then on, the plates in the cafeteria were pink and square, like the plastic lids of Tupperware boxes. 
the school had always been vegetarian, but from then on, other foods began to disappear from the menu. Spaghetti hoops, pineapple rings, bread rolls. There were no more ball sports in PE. Running was still allowed, but the circular track was replaced by a straight line. Swimming continued until the following year when a parent wrote in to say that all bodies of water are tidal, even if the tide is imperceptible in small waters. Even baths were in conversation with the moon. Luckily, the school still let us take showers. In my third year, morning register was died. We would line up on the school field in alphabetical order. After calling our name, teacher would throw a stick. It wasn't simply to see if anyone in the class would actually run and collect the stick. It was to examine any reaction to the stick whatsoever. It was very important that we didn't look at the stick, that we didn't acknowledge the existence of the stick at all. We had to look nonchalant whilst staying absolutely rooted to the spot. Looking casual was hard under such intense scrutiny and several boys from my class ended up removed for further examination. Regulation hair was no longer than one centimetre. Our fingernails had to be cut half a centimetre below the tip of the finger. Also, no pupil at Monroe's had incisors. Part of our induction day involved a visit to the on-site dentist. Pupils who got red flagged could lose even more teeth. Kevin Edelston in the year above us ended up having all his teeth pulled after a prank. There were a couple of rumours around Kevin Edelston's prank, but the school rarely succumbed to gossip. The school had prohibited friendship groups larger than three pupils as a way to combat pack mentality, as they called it. Friends were assigned to us at random by the faculty. I got Gareth Shubb, who wore square spectacles and performed one-man Blackadder episodes for us beneath the caretaker's sniper tower. My other assigned friend was Carl Gibbons, whose mother had shaved every hair off his body, so he looked like some kind of grey stress toy. In my fourth year, Wheels were added to the blacklist. Both cars and bikes were prohibited from approaching the school. Once inside the clearing, Carl, Gareth and I had to lock our bikes and complete the final mile on foot. Possibly of all the changes, this was the addition that aggrieved us the most. Teenage boys hate unnecessary walking. We hated the walking even more than the detention cages they built behind the sports hall or the blackout windows they installed to block out the sun. Essentially, it's just a hot version of the moon, said Mr Kenwood. It could trigger any one of you. Then where would you be? Over time, we could feel the school transforming, extending itself, filling with shadows. The voices of teachers began to tremble, their eyes red from lack of sleep. Every week, they found new ways to be terrified of us. The imagination was breathtaking. On radiator days, Gareth and I began to cycle into the forest, rucksacks heavy with cider. Sometimes, We'd approach the edge of the clearing and howl into Gareth's dad's megaphone just to fuck with the caretaker. He'd let off a couple of blind shots, nothing more. Carl would have been there too if not stuck at home, handcuffed to the plumbing. He would have loved it more than any of us. By our final year, Gareth and I had actually formed our own choir. Radiator Ensemble, we called ourselves. There were 12 of us at our strongest. We'd drink ourselves out of our minds, stripped to our waist, roll in mud. We'd skitter around on all fours, yapping at squirrels. Then howl at the school from the edge of the forest. We sounded like a warped doo-wop record.
Most of Radiator Ensemble never made it to graduation. Teachers found dirt under their nails or scratches on their face. Gareth ended up muzzled. I graduated in a class of four. I got my certificate though, which is the really important part. I moved abroad soon after. As I understand it, Monroe's isn't there anymore. They blew it up. And then uh, they turned it into a lake. Sometimes though, I look up and uh, for a second, I'm right back there. Age nine, lined up for register on that dark October morning when Kevin Edelston came bursting through the school fence on a quad bike. This huge, battery-powered spotlight glowing on his lap, almost as big as him. Kevin Edelston, blasting that huge, perfect circle of light across us. The kind of light that hits you in a play just before the closing monologue. The snarl of the quad bike as the circle grew bigger and bigger. Kevin laughing and howling and laughing and then all of us running with him, chasing him as he circled the school field. Round and around we went, wherever that light beam pointed. We would have followed. Oh, 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 oh. In a dream, I was a werewolf. My soul was filled with crystal light, lavender ribbons of rain saying, ridding my heart of mortal fright. Of mortal fright. Broken sundown, fatherless showdown Burn hair, be swollen in bottle ship Yeah, I suck dick, loose grip on gravity force Sky blinding, crumbling walls Never sweep away my memories of Children's things, a young mother's love Before the yearning song of flesh on flesh Young hearts burst open, wounds bleed fresh a young brother, skinny and tall, my older walks oceanward in somber slumber, sleeping flowers in the water, but I'm just his daughter, walking down an icy grave, leading to my schizophrenic father, weeping willow, won't you wallow louder, searching for my father's power. Oh. 
forever bringing the underground to the foreground you are listening to shadow time on bff.fm i'm lily sloan and you well you are you (laughs) today's show is about the moon uh, or ways that we use the moon to talk about other things you just heard werewolf by coco rosie And before that was the second part of Ross Sutherland's exploration of the moon. Before we go any further into Moondom, I want to encourage you to make a donation to BFF.fm to help keep the station alive and well, and also to check out the BFF.fm app in your app store of choice. And um, yeah, going back to Ross's piece, I am really, really just, I love it so much and I love how it, serves as this really the moon the moon can serve as this really amazing way to look at transitions and cycles like puberty and in this case as um the way the the relationship between parents and children going through it so here's um ross talking about about this work and uh he says it all much better than me. Uh, hello. Um, Ross Sutherland here. Uh, so what you've just heard was something that I wrote originally for my podcast, Imaginary Advice, which is a mix of audio fiction and essays on storytelling, um, all written by me. And uh, this piece is um, it's kind of a good example of the uh, the mix of stuff that I do on the show because you know it's an essay followed by a short story, and uh, both parts are kind of exploring the same questions, but in different mediums. They're uh, they're both about the seductive power of the moon and how that power can be felt. Uh, at a rhetorical level, how the, uh, the 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 poetic image of the moon can sometimes be so overwhelming that you could literally compare the moon to anything and call it poetry. So, like, the first part is just the chance for me to share the uh, creative writing exercise that I do with kids, you know, where we do exactly that. We pluck words randomly from a dictionary and make metaphors about the moon. And um, I I just wanted to share that that exercise really. It's that's my favorite 
poetry workshop exercise to do ever. It was like the first workshop exercise that I, I, I came up with myself. And uh, I like doing it with teenagers, especially because poetry is such an awful subject to learn when you're a teenager. And uh, teachers often oversell the intentions of a poem. You know, there'll be a 10 hour module on a single sonnet where kids are battered over the heads with how you know when the poet says this what they really mean is that etc etc and and it's a horrible way to teach poetry uh all it does is make people hate poetry so i i see it as important to uh to get to go into a school and to show young people uh what it's like to actually write a poem and see how you can how you can create a writing method that generates a lot of happy accidents where we uh, we work out the meaning uh, later. And uh, yeah, I try to show how like intentionality is, is something that arrives during or after the writing process and that poets are, like everybody else in the world, making it up as they go along. Does that help them answer exam questions on poetry? Probably not, but at least they might not leave school completely hating poetry and thinking that it's got nothing to do with them yeah anyway the second part is a uh it's a piece of fiction that i wrote specifically for the podcast episode like i wrote it immediately after i finished the essay part i just came back the next day and sat down and wrote the story and um it's a fantasy story about a school faculty for whom the moon has taken on a uh, a very specific meaning. You know, as far as the faculty of this school are concerned, the moon means werewolves, right? Now, of course, you can read werewolves as a metaphor for adolescence, puberty, sexual awakening, youth, energy, rebellion, whatever. And in the canon of horror stories, werewolves are often cipher for all these things. But uh, in this story, let's just keep it as werewolves for now. Keep it text. And uh, yeah, teachers and parents, they're so, they're so scared of the moon in this story they're so, they're so scared of what it might mean that uh they try to ban it they ban the moon and all the other things that are moon or werewolf adjacent but um like i was talking about in part one the moon is it's so symbolically tied to everything it's so connected to everything that it's an impossible thing to prohibit it's like turning back the tide or opposing all forms of change at an abstract ideological level like it can't be done and yet this is what the school is trying to do and so begins this uh this this ever expanding campaign of censorship to um to block out all versions of the moon so all, all circles get banned wheels dinner plates all bodies of waters all, all windows teeth get removed so these children, in order to keep them docile, to, to stop them from evolving, they uh, they have every single one of their rights stripped away from them by the school. And this is, this is kind of how teenagers are treated, I think, in a way. It was a pretty thin veil of fantasy here. Uh, someone once told me that we should always look at how a government treats kids, because it's kind of how they treat everyone if they can get away with it. and. I think specifically if you look at how young people have been treated over the last few years through the COVID crisis and uh, the gambles that we took as a country, I'm talking about the UK here, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that these things relate internationally as well. Like the risks that we took with young people's health, it's been horrendous. It, 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 it makes my childhood look like a picnic. Anyway, um, and my story, uh, these kids get everything taken away from them. The rules quickly start piling up. And these kind of rules, they always begin under the guise of trying to protect children. But you don't need to look very far to see that these adults, they're actually, it's not the moon that they're scared of. It's, it's young people that they're scared of. They're terrified of children because young people fundamentally symbolize change, political change, social change. and Adults terrified of change. Any change that threatens their worldview and might challenge their position as the rulemaker so what begins is a story about how 
the moon can mean anything and be anything and therefore you can't censor it that kind of evolves into a piece about how young people can mean anything and be anything and are impossible to censor and also it's about the lengths that adults will go to to try to shut that down you know to try to put kids back in their box to to, to try and regulate this thing that it is actually fundamentally impossible to control that was that was far too much i'm sorry i'm gonna go down all right bye Sitter people look back and lament. Another day's useless energy spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one. Lonely man cries for love and has none. New mother picks up and suckles her son. Senior citizens wish they were young. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night. Removes the colors from our sight. Red 
is gray and yellow-white. But we decide which is right. And which is an illusion. Hey Lily, this is a voice memo about rhythms. I have had a hormone cycle since the age of 10, so for 27 years. There were two breaks in the cycle, which is when I went on this drug called Lupron that um, suppresses the ovaries. So. Uh, it's like being on a temporary menopause. The reason was to stop my period. It was supposed to be um, a treatment for endometriosis, and it didn't work the long term. But at the time, I had a break from periods, and I had no cycle for three months at a time. And I experienced time like a straight line which just blew my mind to think that men and postmenopausal women and just people who don't have a cycle or a cycle they're aware of experience time as a straight line. Now, I have suffered a great deal um, with, of pain with my cycle, mostly physical pain, but emotional pain too, but um, I think if it was painless, I'd prefer it because it's grounding, you know, the moon cycles, the earth cycles, the season cycle. So it's grounding to be reminded that time is not a straight line. Thank you, Andrea Maraskin, for that voice memo about rhythms and cycles. There's so much more that I wanted to say today. So many more songs I wanted to play today. Oh, I'm rhyming. Ah, this is when things get bad. Um, but I'm out of time. And, you know, that's, that's a life lesson right there. You just heard Andrea Maraskin with a voice memo. And before that was a a uh, piece that Steve Romanko, a BFF DJ with um, a show on Saturday morning, 7 to 8 a.m., wake the fuck up. Steve Fox, I should say. <laughs> Sorry for uh, using your regular name. Um, created. And it's called. it was called uh, a Late Lament. And before that was a voice memo from Ross Sutherland, whose work was featured today. Thank you so much everyone who contributed thank you so much to ross please check out imaginary advice where you got your podcasts go to imaginaryadvice.com to learn more about ross's other work but also to go to the merch page where you can find uh his new book which is a creative writing prompt journal full of silly uh prompts that like ones that ross would use to make some of his work and teach others how to write and I bought it, and I am loving it so much. It's The prompts are hilarious. Last night I did the one that was right, finished the sentence. Uh, her smile reminds me of 20 times, but each time you get one extra word. So the first time you only use, you only use one more word to complete the sentence. The second, two more words, so on, all the way through 20. Uh, I got really hung up on... Um, lettuce wraps for some reason and talking about her smile I don't know why but that's what's so amazing about it we're gonna end with Jamie Borshuk who has contributed voice memos to the show before but is also a musician and you can find her solo music on Bandcamp Bright Gray Wing is what she performs as and she did a very cool lo-fi cover of Moon River from her solo album um, facts figures that you can find there on Bandcamp. And 
yeah, I'm I'm sorry I can't say more about cycles and control and the desire to um, understand our rhythms and what's happening and how the moon and the way the moon affects us is does not feel like science. It feels like magic. It feels like witchcraft. And yet it's happening and it's just so bizarre. But yeah, come back next week for more shadow time. I'm sure I'll revisit these themes and please stay tuned for DJ Mello after this. Here is uh, Moon River. Moon River.